is a 1.5 degree world, you've lost individual species. Three degrees, you've now lost whole systems, whole islands, whole mountaintops. Many of my climate science colleagues say one thing in private and a very different thing in public. They are just as scared as I am, and they, in many cases, no more optimistic than I am. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the podcast. As you know, on this show, we focus a lot on the various futures that we have available to us, and especially when it comes to the climate crisis. And usually we talk about solutions and technologies that are coming to help us mitigate climate change. But today, we're going to explore what life as an Earthling might feel like if we fail and face a climate breakdown. That's why today's show is titled Life at 3C. But before we get into that, I'm one of your hosts, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I support companies in the energy transition and climate tech companies with Technica Communications. And I support all genders in this space with women in clean tech and sustainability. And I spend a lot of time on this podcast with Christian. And I'm your other co-host, Christian Roseland. I'm a writer and policy analyst in the energy industry. And I have to say, today's subject is a hard one. There's no bigger issue that we're facing in the early 21st century. And climate is just this overarching thing that affects literally every aspect of life on Earth. If we ever had a doom-scrolling episode, I think this would be it. So buckle up, buckaroos. We're not going to sugarcoat it for you. We're here to really talk about what we can expect with the best knowledge that people have right now. So if you're listening with small children, there might be some extra parenting in your future as you help them understand the world we are on track to give them. Yeah, and I just want to say, even for the adults out there, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the severity of what we're facing. But we can't close our eyes. We need to face what's coming so that we can react appropriately. And that overwhelm is probably one of the reasons why we really haven't acted as a society as much as the science would indicate that we ought to. So we're going to take a look at what a 3C temperature rise means. And we chose 3C because according to the latest reports by the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, with the current pledges that all countries have made to mitigate climate change, we are currently on track for a 2.8C level of warming. That's not the 1.5C that many countries have pledged to with the Paris Agreement. 2.8C is if these countries are successful in achieving their climate pledges. <clears throat> United States. <clears throat> <laughs> yes. <laughs> like stopping the climate breakdown is like the ultimate group project. And we all know how those worked out at university. Two students doing the bulk of the work for the whole group. Yes. Thank you, Denmark and Costa Rica. Oh, in Germany. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. The United Kingdom as well. Norway, Sweden, Uruguay, Morocco. Like these are countries that are out in front, right? But we need all the countries out in front and we need them doing more than just what's going to keep us at 2.8 C. And if you look at like the climate change performance index, the United States is in 52nd place as of 2023. So yeah, this is one set of metrics about how badly this group project is going. <laughs> and let's be clear, we've already fallen behind. You know, we're already trying to play catch up. Yeah. And so that fall behind is we're at 1.1 degrees of warming right now. And already we're seeing extreme weather events and the global South countries are really having to adjust to this new normal. And the IPCC says there's no credible pathway, quote, unquote, to limiting the increase to 1.5. 
Yeah, I still think that there's a valid argument not to give up and go to two. I still think there's a valid argument to try to shoot for 1.5c because every degree and every fraction of a degree counts. Lives are literally on the line. And my imperfect understanding, I am not a client scientist, but my understanding is that what puts 1.5c out of reach isn't the emissions that are already in the atmosphere, but what we almost certainly will emit during this decade. Basically, our inability to reduce emissions fast enough. Yes. And that's basically within seven years is the time frame that we, we have if we really want to mitigate the worst effects. Right. According to the previous IPCC report, the special report on 1.5C in 2018, if we don't cut global emissions in half by 2030, we actually do lose the window. And to get started on this journey, we spoke to one of those rare scientists who's willing to be more outspoken about this more than his colleagues, sometimes out of legitimate fears for their careers, even though it's what the scientific data is clearly telling us. Professor Bill Maguire, I'm Professor Emeritus of Geophysical and Climate Hazards at University College London. I was a contributor to the IPCC report on extreme events in 2012. I'm the author of a new book called Hothouse Earth, an Inhabitant's Guide. Well, I wrote this book in the follow-up to the COP26 climate conference at Glasgow, because all the talk there was of keeping the one and a half degree centigrade climate change guardrail alive when it was clearly obvious that it's dead in the water. And that's really the whole point of the book, is to say we are going to face difficult times and we need to adapt to those at the same time as continuing to take action. So you talk about the physical phenomena of climate breakdown in your book, saying that there's no chance of dodging a grim future of perilous, all-pervasive climate breakdown. In broad strokes, what does that mean for the future of life on this planet? Well, it's pretty grim, to be honest. Over the last maybe 10 years or so, the rise of one and a half degrees centigrade above pre-industrial times has been equated to the arrival of dangerous or pervasive climate change, which will affect everyone and have a massive impact on society and economy. We're in a position now where in order to stay this side of that temperature, we need emissions to fall 45% in something a little over 90 months by 2030, which is just not going to happen. So we have to face the fact now that we will face very difficult conditions in terms of not only the physical impacts of climate breakdown, but also its effect as a, what I call a threat multiplier. In other words, how it will make things like famine and war and civil strife and health much, much worse than it is now. So even at one and a half degrees or slightly above, we're going to be living in a completely different world. And of course, if we continue to take no action, then we're heading up to two degrees, three degrees possibly even more. And you're then looking at an existential threat to our civilization, possibly even the human race itself. And most people are not prepared to hear that statement, that we're going to 3C, 4, maybe worse. When you think about how that might show up on the planet, what do you think someone's average day might look like? That's incredibly difficult to predict because the onset of climate breakdown and extreme weather in particular is happening so fast now. And I'll give you one statistic, which is in the book for 2050, and that is that we'll need 50% more food for the growing population, but crop yields could be down by as much as 30%. Now, that on average translates into the amount of food we have available per person being cut in half. Now, imagine the sort of world where that's the case. It would be a world of societal 
an economic breakdown and complete chaos. That is 28 years into the future. So it's not necessarily the number of heat waves or floods or whatever, which we will get as well, but it's the general impact on society of a world where crops simply won't grow as they need to to feed us all. I really appreciate that tangible detail of, okay, this means not enough to eat. And I think that that's something that makes your book really different from the others that I've read and that it describes in concrete terms what it will be like to live on a warming planet. Let's go on a little bit more about some of the physical manifestations. You talk about heat waves, flooding, drought, storms that we're increasingly facing. And when I read what you had to say about the heat waves, I mean, when you reach wet bulb temperatures above what the human body can handle, people are going to die. So when do you expect the first mass human casualty event? I mean, like hundreds of thousands of deaths, and not just the elderly, but across all age groups to occur. And where is it most likely to happen? Yeah, well, I think humid heat waves are one of the scariest things that climate breakdown is going to bring. These are conditions above a combination of humidity and temperature that will see the human body not being able to sweat and therefore not lose heat. And under those conditions, you only have six hours to live, whether you're fit, whether you're in the shade or whatever. These sorts of conditions have been encountered here and there around the Persian Gulf, places like that over the last few years, but they're not really expected to become very, very obvious until the second half of this century. Although I would say that everything seems to be proceeding more rapidly than we've previously predicted. But one of the areas of huge concern is the North China Plain, where you have a huge area of agriculture. It's the breadbasket, if you like, of China. Lots of crops are irrigated. So it's very high humidity, high temperatures, and something like 400 million people work in the fields there, generally without access to air conditioning. Now, if you have a circumstance after 2050 where humid heat waves strike over a day or two, then there's nowhere for those people to go. So the potential death toll is just staggeringly high. You could see millions dying in a day, in theory. I mean, I hesitate to say tens of millions. It's unimaginable, but it is real, if you like. So wait, you're saying we're seeing these sort of wet, bold temperatures already in isolated conditions, in isolated places? I mean, it was thought that we hadn't got to this stage yet, but there were reports recently, I think a paper was published recently actually saying that they have been encountered in not towns or cities, but in places around the Middle East and the Persian Gulf in particular, and that you know these things might gradually increase and spread across the planet. But it's China that's a big worry. And generally speaking, after 2050, although, you know, as I said, things are just moving so fast, I wouldn't be surprised to see some big humid death event before that. Wow. So basically you're saying post-2050, these are regular occurrences, and so these places become uninhabitable. Yeah, effectively they do. I mean, you can't live and work in a place where you don't know if the temperatures and the conditions the next day are going to be sufficiently amenable for you to survive. You can't do that. And there are going to be other issues in places like China and Southeast Asia after the middle of the century, because so much of the Timberlain ice will have gone, so many of the glaciers will have gone, that the river flow from all the big Asian rivers which drain the Himalayas will be slowing down. And of course, that provides irrigation that feeds two billion people. So you, know, you have that on top of this issue of humid heat waves as well. Would you think that people are going to attempt to adapt? I mean, in your book, you talked about 250 million people moving across sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Latin America. By 2050. I mean, where are these people going to go? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, that's a whole another part of how 
society is going to break down very quickly due to these threat multiplier effects. And you will have hundreds of millions of people on the move because they simply won't be able to grow crops where they live or won't have access to water or it's just too hot. I mean, you know, these are my figures. These are everything in the book is peer-reviewed published material or observation. So these are predictions that are have been made. And I wouldn't be surprised to see bigger figures and higher figures than that, in fact. My area of expertise started in volcanology. And my interest in it was in the links between things like volcanoes and earthquakes and climate. And in fact, a rapidly changing climate triggers earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis, which is something most people would be staggered by, but which is true. Greenland has a three kilometer thick ice cap on it, but the center of Greenland is pushed down below sea level by that ice. And already, as the Greenland ice sheet melts, we can see the North Atlantic starting to bounce back again, the the crust of the North Atlantic. And if there are any faults on the Greenland, those faults will have been unable to move for maybe 100,000 years or more. They'll have a huge amount of strain on them. If they do move, and when they move, they will produce big earthquakes. Those earthquakes can trigger submarine landslides. And I have German colleagues working in this area who say we can see what they call a seismic response below Greenland within decades. So this isn't something that's way off in the future. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of the things that you talk about aren't actually way off in the future. I mean, I think about these heat waves, and you're basically talking about them being commonplace after 2050. That doesn't mean that we won't see them in the next few decades. So to go to something else that I think is really important for people to understand, your book talks about some of the feedback loops that can make the climate crisis even more serious. And if we pick just one, can you explain how a warming planet releases more methane and the effect that that will have on driving further warming? Yes, well, methane is a fantastically effective greenhouse gas. Over a 20-year period, it's 86 times more effective at warming the planet than carbon dioxide. The thing is, it doesn't hang around in the atmosphere as long. It disappears quite quickly. Now, as the planet warms, clearly the permafrost is starting to thaw and methane is starting to come out of the ground on land. And that's a huge concern because it would effectively bring forward global heating by about 30 years. So we'd be instantly transported to 2050. There's debate about this. Some people say, well, if we look back at other times, the planet's heated up quickly. We don't see any sign of these big burps of methane. But, you know, the absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. So we're not certain about that. So the methane releases is something that I do know a lot of people are sort of tracking because it is a major concern. And like, how far off do you think we are from some of these, what might be called tipping points, like the massive methane release or forests turning from carbon dioxide sinks into sources or the Greenland ice sheet, as you mentioned, melting and causing these earthquakes and tsunamis. How do you track these? Well, some of the tipping points we may already have reached. You only know you've crossed a tipping point when you've crossed it. There was a report published fairly recently about tipping points, which pointed out that some of them, like the collapse of the Greenland ice sheet, the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, the slowing or dramatic shutdown of the Gulf Stream, these sorts of things you might expect to happen at only around one and a half degrees global average temperature rise, or even slightly below that, which means we could have crossed these tipping points and just don't know it yet. And even if we haven't, we will do very, very soon. So we could already be committed to losing the green and ice sheet, because what a tipping point means is when it's been tipped, you can't tip it back again, whatever you do to reduce emissions or temperatures. So if we've crossed the tipping point for the Greenland ice sheet, it will carry on 
collapsing and melting whatever we do and ultimately will give us a sea level rise of seven meters with the west antarctic ice sheet the same thing applies only sea level rise would be another five meters on top of that so some of these things are upon us now others like soils becoming sources of carbon rather than sinks you're looking maybe at a few more decades ahead but not that far ahead and it's you know, scary to know that the amazon rainforest now is a source of carbon rather than a sink which is you know staggering to be honest i mean a lot of that comes from the fact that much of it is being burnt and hacked down but nevertheless that we're at that stage already is very very frightening and in your book you mentioned for every 1 degree c of global heating there's this increased risk of conflict and that could be you know social unrest or civil strife or all out war and i think you mentioned that number rises by 14% with every 1 degree of global heating yeah that's a, that's a <laughs> i may mention that it's it's very unlikely that you can pinpoint the increase that precisely but it shows the trend in terms of conflict we can already see where those areas are going to be i mean there's huge interest from the arctic nations united states canada russia etc in terms of trade routes across the north pole as the sea ice melts metal deposits oil and gas etc and you know that's going to become an area of conflict as time goes on there'll be wars fought over water there's no doubt about it and places potential hotspots would be east africa middle east and the area i really worry about and i mentioned it earlier on is southeast asia because as the glaciers fail in the himalayas so the rivers that drain them the ganges the yangtze the yellow and the rest of them will start to fail and undoubtedly countries in that part of the world will come into conflict and dispute over their water supplies and of course you're dealing with three big nations there pakistan india and china who are all nuclear powers so you know that doesn't really bode particularly well for the future right yeah i mean this leads into something that i've been contemplating thinking about a lot i'd love to hear your take on it obviously your stance on climate crisis is dramatically stronger than many of your colleagues and in fact, in your book, you suggested that the IPCC is underplaying the threat. And I'm trying to understand if this is a conscious decision by those in power because they want to limit civil unrest or something less sinister. With regard to the IPCC, everything that goes in their report is scrutinized by national representatives. And that includes people from Saudi Arabia, from other Gulf states, from China, from the United States, from the UK. Many countries don't like what they read and they object to certain sentences, they object to this, that and the other. So the IPCC reports end up as consensus reports, which are conservative. The consensus in terms of the science is because they tend to rule out some of the more extreme suggestions, even though they're in peer-reviewed papers, because they have claimed in the past there is insufficient evidence yet. So tipping points and their potential impacts aren't really addressed as they should be, for example, in the IPCC reports. So in terms of, of that organisation, it's not sinister. It's just the way things work. And most scientists know that those reports are underplayed. And I should say as well that many of my climate science colleagues say one thing in private and a very different thing in public. They are just as scared as I am, and they, in many cases, no more optimistic than I am. I'm helped by the fact, I think, that I took very early retirement from academia to focus on 
generally on writing and climate activism. So I don't have any pressures on me, whereas many climate scientists who still work in the academic sector have pressure to get grants to publish in the top journals and all this sort of thing. And they worry that these sorts of things will be influenced if they go out on a limb. There's peer pressure as well to stick to the consensus, which is all well and good, but the consensus could be completely wrong. Just because it's a consensus doesn't mean it's right. So there is an issue there in terms of climate scientists saying in private, in saying in public what they say in private or think in private. If they all did, that would make a big difference to how people perceive the threat, I think. You know, I find it really interesting that you say that your colleagues understand how these IPPC reports are created and how they're reviewed and perhaps watered down. But I think the general public doesn't understand that. So they think that the IPCC report is the best assessment that is being made on the climate crisis. Well, that's absolutely true. But that was before my book was published. So now they know where to go. Now, we all know about trying to fly less or not flying at all, trying not to eat meat, recycle, all this sort of stuff, which is all well and good, and we should all be doing it. But the emphasis has to be on electing into power, and that's at every level from the local council upwards to national governments, people who understand what global heating and climate breakdown is all about and actually act on it, not just talk about it. That's absolutely critical. And one of the ways of doing that is to get out there and be active, work for organisations who, in the UK, certainly Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil and other organisations we have, get out and work with them, do something active that will get governments to at least notice that the threat is there and think about doing something about them. I've had lots of people say to me, well, I recycle and I don't even meet in that, but I feel lost. I don't feel what I can do. And I say, become an activist, get out there and do something. You don't have to glue yourself to anything or whatever. You can do other work, but do it. It'll make you feel a lot less depressed and more positive. And the other thing about activism in general is that it has had a massive role in pushing up climate breakdown and global heating up the agenda. I mean, Extinction Rebellion has had a massive impact in the UK in terms of people's perceptions of the threat. So, you know, they do a huge amount and people involved in them feel a lot better and a lot more positive about the future, even if it is grim. I mean, yeah, certainly there's been a lot accomplished over the centuries when humans practice civil unrest, nonviolent, or I guess in some cases violent, depending on what portion of history you're looking at. I wonder, what do you think might finally cause society to mobilize in large numbers, similar to what we may have seen in the United States with the protests against Vietnam or the civil rights movement, these types of massive social change moments in history? Well, I think it's linked to an answer I gave earlier about not seeing real action from governments until things get bad enough for them to find it impossible to ignore. And I think extreme weather is the key because that's what will have the big impacts on food supply and water availability. And I think when people in developed countries, rather, like the US, like the UK, like Europe, when they find it difficult to find food or find the food they want at the time they want, I think it'll become much more apparent then that things are beginning to fail. I think it's it's unlikely to be specific extreme weather events. It's going to be the obvious fraying of society at the edges and the fact that it's beginning to collapse. I think then people will be out on the streets 
pushing for change. And then by then, do you think it might be too late? Well, it will definitely be too late to avoid dangerous or pervasive climate breakdown, but it won't be too late to avoid even more heating. I mean, the key point is that even if we've lost one and a half degrees, every 0.1 degree C above that, we need the fight to stop happening. So the sooner we realise the scale of our predicament and the depth of where we are, then the sooner we can start doing that. Well, that's a heavy dose of reality for you. Oh, gosh. That's just... Extreme humid heat waves becoming more prevalent and lasting longer, food and water shortages, and that's just the beginning. <laughs> My gosh, I feel very overwhelmed already. For those of you who would like more information on what Professor McGuire is predicting here, Hot House Earth, an Inhabitant's Guide, is the book that he most recently wrote, and we'll put that in the show notes. Oh, Christian, so thinking about all of this and how scary the climate crisis could be reminds me of how, you know, when you're looking up at the night sky and you can see all the stars in the Milky Way and it's just almost overwhelming the vastness of the universe, I kind of feel like that's how I feel about the climate crisis often. It's so intangible. So let's break it down. Dangerously high wet bulb temperatures, when they're commonplace, let's talk about what that might be like. Sure. So it's too hot to go outside. And if you're inside, you will need air conditioning. And for places that don't have air conditioning or places that do, but where the local grids can't handle the strain, people of all ages, including healthy people, could die in large numbers. Incidentally, the first chapter of the book Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson lays out what this will look like in gory detail. This is considered climate fiction, but I don't consider it science fiction. Scientists like Professor McGuire expect this to happen in the next few decades, so you could call it science fact. <laughs> and if you haven't read this and you want to get a healthy dose of reality, I recommend that you read it. I agree. Thank you. We'll also put that in the show notes as well. When I read it, it took me two sittings to get through that first chapter because it was like reading a horror novel. But, you know, once I got through it, I did find it to be a very enjoyable read. There was some enlightening stuff in there that I definitely think people would gain benefit from. Yeah, I made the mistake of reading it during a minor heat wave. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, so this chapter basically describes a situation where the city in India is in a heat wave. And there's a group of people who are trying to stay safe, and they lose their access to air conditioning. When heat waves like this become more commonplace, people are just going to move en masse, which means climate migrants. Because if it's too hot to live where you are, Anyone, you know, who can and in their right mind is going to leave. Yep, absolutely. And for those people who are left, they're going to spend the majority of their time indoors during these massive heat waves. And it sounds like as time progresses and if the climate crisis moves very quickly, then the heat waves might last longer and longer. So I would anticipate that life could feel like similar to how people spend a lot of time indoors during the winter in the global north, right? So I can see how a lot of summer activities that are traditionally outside are going to get moved indoors or they'll be scrapped. In Kuwait, we're already seeing this. Just even like small stuff like people saying they have to walk their dogs before the sun comes up because the dogs can't walk on the pavement. It's too hot. Yeah. And laborers shifting to working at night. We're already seeing that in some places. We can expect that to become more commonplace. Perhaps buildings will be redesigned 
fewer windows, fewer glass facades. I would expect higher efficiency buildings overall. And also any new AC technologies are going to be ones that are going to be incredibly efficient so that you're not stressing the grid. Yeah, where that can be done. I also expect more partially or fully underground construction, but that's going to take time. Yeah. You know, it's going to take time to build those buildings and people are going to be stuck in the buildings that they have. Yeah. Or like earth ships, like in Taos, New Mexico, those are built partially underground. They're built using the earth. So they're cooler. That could be interesting. But speaking of space exploration, I think someone's going to invent an environmental suit for people on earth to wear to stay cool, something like firefighters use, but maybe a little more maneuverable. But as you say, Christian, I think the easiest thing for people to do is to migrate to other locations. And Bill said by 2050, nearly half the world may live in areas that have dangerous levels of heat for at least a month. And that includes Miami, Lagos, Shanghai. Yeah. And, you know, those are huge cities. And those are cities where there's a lot of people who aren't going to have the money to access some sort of high tech solution. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Miami, it's going underwater. You can basically expect a future of more and more frequent flooding until it goes underwater entirely. Because at this point, sea level rise is baked in, and it's just a matter of time. Mm -hmm. And what Bill was saying is that the speculation is it could be as high as 20 meters. But if he's right in saying that we may have already crossed the tipping point for the Greenland ice sheet, that's seven meters. And then the West Antarctic ice sheet would be another five meters. So we might already have 12 meters baked in, and that's 40 feet for you Americans. What are cities going to do? Are they just going to turn into a new Venice? Yeah, I think some cities are going to build seawalls, but I expect those cities that do, that are able to raise the money to do that and you know get that together, those are going to be the more affluent cities. I expect Manhattan to build a seawall, but I don't know about Miami. Mm -hmm. And the Florida Keys, even at five feet, that's gone. Yeah. New Orleans becomes almost an island at that level, surrounded by the new levee walls, but everything around it will be underwater except the elevated roadways coming in. Mm -hmm. And maybe people will abandon the first few stories of a building to the water, but I think it's unclear that these buildings are going to maintain any structural integrity being surrounded by seawater. Yeah. That's already a problem because we have buildings already collapsing in Miami because of the intrusion of salt water and what that does to concrete. So... Not looking Not good. There. Not looking no. good. I mean, I know people in Miami love their boats, so they might be happy to uh, get around the town on boats instead of their cars. But your beach vacations are going to be gone, right? Those beaches formed over millennia, and they're going to be covered in water. So there's all your tourism dollars. Yeah. And, you know, I, hopefully these sea levels will rise slowly enough that cities can adapt. And since this is something that we're talking about taking place over a slower time frame, than some of the other threats. I'm more concerned about what Bill said about food and water shortages, some of that coming from lower crop yields, and particularly the increase in diseases and pests that we can expect in a warming planet. Because when the natural systems that we depend on begin to fail, that's when we face a climate breakdown. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's a great segue into our next guest, Christian. Thank you for that. We spoke to someone who's got a better handle on how all this is going to play out related to ecosystem effects, and she's someone who's participated in several reports for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I'm Camille Parmesan, and I have three affiliations, but I'm based primarily in France with CNRS. It's the National Center for Scientific Research. I'm a professor of climate change biology. The 1.5 degree target is really a target for not losing the most sensitive systems. 
And as you get beyond two degrees, up to three degrees and four degrees warming, we're starting to get to the point of the losses that are being expected will then become sufficient enough that whole ecosystems will start losing their integrity and start losing their ability to function. So we've talked a lot about what we're seeing right now, and it's already feeling very depressing. When we look at a 3C global rise in temperature, it's going to look very different. And from an ecological standpoint, what do you think some of the most obvious things people might experience? Can you paint a picture for us? Can you teleport us into this possible future? Well, with the 3C future, we're really seeing whole ecosystems fundamentally shifting to be new systems. But most things have barriers to shifting. Either they have natural barriers, there's a mountain range. You know, if you're the Florida Everglades, you can't shift into a mountain range. Even more important, there are human barriers. You've got cities, you have agricultural fields. And so it's not possible for most of these systems to just do this, you know, nice gradual shift northward and we'll still have them. Tropical coral reefs will be gone. They simply are not going to survive a three degree centigrade world. And once the reef goes, then of course you have this whole thousands and thousands of other species that are using the reef as the habitat. You know, the urchins, the fish, the octopus, all this other wildlife that relies on that reef structure will not have a home. And so this loss of whole systems, it's difficult to predict exactly when it will happen. There's the direct effects of these species die off. Let's talk about what that means for human beings living on Earth. What does it mean when ecosystem services fail? So as a conservation biologist, I'm, of course, very upset to lose any species, right? And so just thinking of the number of species that will go extinct at three degrees is something that I find personally very distressing. But in pulling together this report, what we pulled together were a series of shifts in the ecological processes happening worldwide, a whole series of shifts that when you put them all together are driving a reduction of the ability of life on earth, largely plant life, to suck up carbon. And in some cases, we're seeing systems that were really healthy carbon sinks. Also, because you have the massive tree deaths, then you've got more fuel for the fires as you're getting an increase in fire weather that's sparking these enormous burns of those forests, which again, releases all that carbon back up into the atmosphere. And the same thing's happening in the ocean. The ability of the ocean to suck up carbon, it's getting near saturation point. And so the biggest risk of going up to three or four degrees centigrade, even if it's only for a few decades, is that those processes at some point become irreversible, which means nothing humans do. No amount of humans reducing our emissions will affect them. So to me, that is the scariest product of our report is putting the numbers together on the risks of overshoot and finding out that we are closer to that risk than I think a lot of people thought. When you talk about this concept of overshoot and all of these irreversible effects, is that related to the feedback loops we hear a lot about? That if we go to 3C, 
that there's just the irreversible changes and these everything kind of doubles up on itself. And it's like a snowball rolling downhill, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There you go. Yes. It's where you've pushed the system to a point where it's rolling on its own. It's got its own momentum. We're no longer pushing it, but that system doesn't care. It's creating more warming on its own. It's no longer relying on the warming the humans are creating. It's doing it itself. And eventually it would stabilize, but we're talking hundreds of thousands of years. It's not going to stabilize in a couple of decades. And I think that's the other misconception of certainly a lot of policymakers have is they think, oh, okay, that'll start. But then if we stop all of our emissions, all human emissions, it'll calm down, right? Well, yeah, but we're talking hundreds of thousands of years. This is not something, it's very hard to get it moving in that direction, but we've been working on it for a couple of hundred years now. And at some point, it will become irreversible from a human perspective. Okay, not in geological time, not in millions of years, but in terms of the human cycle of life, not just our lifetimes, but our society's lifetimes, it's irreversible. And that gets back to something that you mentioned earlier, which was some of these ecosystem services. This is a term that I have personally not heard of before. So I'd like to ask you, what are these ecosystems doing for humans that we're completely, you know, taking for granted that we might not have at 3C? Yeah, so ecosystem services is a term that I think conservation biologists came up with to describe the whole suite of things that humans take for granted, that ecosystems actually are doing for humans. And they include things like carbon storage. So that's one of them, but also water filtration, filtering and storing the water so that we have clean, abundant water. And this was illustrated beautifully when the watershed for the city of New York was largely clear cut. So all the trees were cut down and then they lost the topsoil and suddenly New York did not have drinkable water. I mean, literally, if you turn the tap on, you got out some brown gunk that wasn't drinkable. And so they put a huge effort into restoring the Catskills. And I think about pollinators as well. Like if we lose the pollinators, SOL. So 20% of our crops rely on native pollinators to be the most productive that they can be. And a lot of people assume you can just put out domestic honeybees And you see this actually in Asia, quite a lot of people put out domestic honeybees, but the science shows those are not as good at pollinating as are the wild bees and flies, et cetera, that pollinate those systems. So yes, you can do that, but you will have lower productivity than you have in systems that have adjacent natural areas with a good, healthy, diverse set of bees and flies to pollinate those plants. It goes on and on and on. I imagine that a lot of the research you do can be pretty depressing when you start to think about what the future will hold for climate change. How do you manage doing the work that you do and having the knowledge that you have and keeping yourself sane and healthy? I spend a lot of time in the healthiest places I can find. (laughs) I mean, seriously, a lot of times I just like, I've just got to go somewhere that, that still looks good and that still has you know, the birds and the bees and the butterflies and the trees. Because one thing I worry about is humans are so adaptable and it's why we dominate the earth now, right? 
but it's also potentially going to cause our own demise because we forget what healthy is. We just think of whatever we experienced when we were younger or maybe even shorter time than that, just what we've experienced in the last few years suddenly becomes the new normal. And it's, you know, it's a process called shifting baseline. As the earth deteriorates, we keep shifting the baseline of what we consider a normal, healthy earth. And so I think it's really important for the youngest generation to see the healthiest systems we still have so that then when they grow up and become the politicians, the head of corporations, whatever, they retain that memory of what earth should look like and what the planet should be and hopefully will advocate and take the action that current policymakers are perhaps not as willing to take. And by the way, kids get it. I do teach little kids. Five-year-olds get it. Oh, so one of the messages here is that losing biodiversity doesn't just affect other species. It affects us as humans. Mm-hmm. And people really take for granted how all these biosystems are interconnected. Yeah, you know, this has actually been a pet peeve of mine for decades. We seem to think that we can tamper with ecosystems through things like genetic engineering of crops and not screw up everything else along the way. (laughs) I mean, hello, monarch butterflies. Uh, Because we have such a great track record. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. These ecosystems have evolved together over eons and they thrive together. They need each other. And we're only at 1.1C and these extinction events are already mounting. Yeah. And, you know, actually, in some ways, they predate the climate crisis. There's a really great book on this subject. Another book plug. I got to do it. Elizabeth Colbert's Sixth Mass Extinction. Mind-blowing book. Highly recommend it if you haven't read it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yep. I like how you're coming up with all these books for us. We're going to turn our listeners into readers or, or they can listen to the audiobooks too, I guess. When I was doing some research on the Sixth Mass Extinction, some studies were saying within 300 years, 75% of Earth's species could vanish. But, you know, 300 years, it's a long way away. If we just look at the next 50 years, they expect 10% to be extinct. And by 2021, which is only basically 80 years from now, 27%. And, you know, what happens when nature begins to severely struggle with climate change? Well, you know, I think that things will adapt where they can and they will collapse where they can't. You know, animals can migrate. Plants can't move as fast. And I'd like to think that there would be a movement to protect these vulnerable environments. And I assume for some species, we may have to protect them by keeping them in captivity. And, you know, also to remember, these natural systems are how we get our food and in many cases, clean water. Mm-hmm. Right. So what does that mean? More renewable energy powered desalination units around the world. But then again, we're going to need more zero carbon energy to do that, plus power all the electric vehicles and everything else we want to do to reduce the carbon we're putting out. So these clean and stable grids are going to have to be ramped up quickly. Yeah. And let's talk about drinking water because this is a big one. You find out really quickly in a disaster area how important water is. For me, this was in post-Katrina New Orleans. Fresh water is more important than anything. You know, you heard all these stories about looters, but when I looked into it and and talked to people, I found out that in many cases, people were looting grocery stores for bottled water. I mean, yeah, some people were stealing jewelry, but uh, people needed water because there was water everywhere, but you couldn't drink it. Water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. That's really scary, especially when you think about like the UN anticipates by 2025, two thirds of the global population will live in water scarce areas. 
2030, so five years after that, 700 million people could be at risk of displacement by water scarcity. So that's migration. It's not that far off. More migration. Mm -hmm. And if we lose the pollinators or regions become inhospitable to growing enough food, that's going to get really bad for people. So they're going to leave. They're going to migrate. And if you consider all of this being food and water becoming very scarce, social unrest and resource wars could follow. Yeah. And this is particularly important for the global south, which is experiencing these impacts on agriculture from the climate crisis now and where people are already more vulnerable. So this is why we spoke with Dr. Edmund Toten, a research scientist who works for a nonprofit called SIRISAT, which stands for the International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics. Dr. Toten also coordinated the Africa chapter on climate adaptation in a recent IPCC report. We have strong evidence that climate change is impacting Africa and will continue to impact many development sectors, including food, health, education. And I hope that this report will convince the decision makers, mainly policy makers, to take actions. And as I tweeted last week, early this week, and said, well, it's time for actions and we should no longer wait. So Edmund, what are you seeing in your community when it comes to climate change and how do you see the future playing out? Well, I think when we look at many African communities, we can see different type of pattern, either in urban or rural area. In rural area, we can see that many crops are, in terms of the yield, being affected, mainly because of the climate condition, but also mainly because of the impact on our availability of water, which is uh, one of the key ingredients for our food production. And in urban regions, we can see the impact. It may not be direct impact, but it's a reflect through the change of prices. It has to do with the availability of food. It has to do with migration. So it's different type of pattern depending on where we are. I can elaborate a bit in in how we see climate change in Africa, mainly in rural areas in terms of food production, where the report clearly show impact on uh, tomato crops in Africa. We have maize. Maize, you can see that it's a staple crop from West Africa till where people eat it. It's a different format what we used to call to in Senegal or Mali or part in West Africa, in coastal region, Togo, Benin, or Ugali in East Africa, where we see that the yield of this typical crop has already decreased on average by 6% in sub-Saharan Africa because of the climate change conditions. We also see that in general, in terms of crop yield and productivity, we have uh, clear evidence that the productivity growth has been reduced by uh, about 34% more than any other region. So those are concrete evidence uh, of how climate change is already impacting agriculture. And we have specific impact uh, when we look at also cash crop like coffee or tea or even olives in uh, northern Africa we can see how this uh, is happening. And when we look at the future, for instance, when I look, um, we mainly look at the maize, 
we see that under 1.5 degrees, so it will likely, the yield will decrease by 8%. And when we move to 2 degrees, it can decrease by 20 to 40%. When we say 20 to 40% for this type of crop, maize, which is a, one of the major step crop, it has implication on livelihood. It has implication on uh, health because so we, when people are not eating, yeah, then they can have different diseases. But it has an implication on and the capacity of people to send uh, their children to school. So that's what we call kind of cascading impacts or how what is happening in the food sector is affecting many other priority sectors in Africa. Did I hear you right? And you said that um, when you move to two degrees, global temperature rise, there would be a 20 to 40 percent decrease in maize production or yield. 20 to 40 percent of the crew in West African countries. So then would you anticipate that these communities would change the type of crop that they would be growing and find something else to substitute for that? Or how do you think these communities would adapt? You know, we cannot predict it for sure, but uh, yeah, they can shift to other crops uh, more resilient. We have, for instance, sorghum and millet, which yield could also change, but not sure. But they are more resilient than maize. They could also move into something else, try to find other activity outside of agriculture, which is quite complex. That's where, for instance, it comes on the migrations. And this is something in the Africa chapter. So, we see that in Africa, most of the migrations are internal, people moving from one place because of the soil quality has decreased, so they will move to another region where they still have more fertile land and where the rainfall is still enough to cover their need. There's another question here, which is clearly... When we look at these, you know, two degrees, three degrees C, we're talking about some very serious impacts. Clearly, while there are different strategies that can be taken for adaptation, that it gets harder. The challenge in Africa, we are combining climate challenges, but we are combining it with increased population in Africa. We are combining it with urbanization, which put a lot of pressure on production resources, mainly land and water. So the challenge is how can we use small piece of land to produce enough food for our growing population? It has to do with how we use technologies. But it's not only about technologies, but how we create conditions for those technologies to be widely used. That's where we call for policy support and create a condition for, we refer to irrigation, small scale irrigation systems. But if we don't consider this carefully, it can also lead to maladaptations in terms of water depletion. So, so that's why we really stress on small-scale irrigations. That's how the government can create financial foundation for people, small loan, small credit for farmers to get access to those uh, technologies. It also has to do with the breeding. And I think across the world, breeders are doing a great job 
to find the most accurate type of varieties that cope with many challenges, water stress, global warming, temperature rise. So the breeding is something that is very important and critical for the future of agriculture and the future of the food production in Africa. The takeaway from Dr. Toten, what I'm hearing is that even at 1.1 degrees C of global temperature rise, farmers are already adapting. And even if they switch to certain grains, water is still going to be a real concern. And on top of that, Africa's population is only going to continue to grow. Yeah, I feel like what we're seeing now in the global south, this need for adaptation and these circumstances that in some cases can't be adapted to, this is what we're going to see in the global north only later. The global south is just in a position to see all of this sooner and worse. And they may not be in the same economic situation to be able to spend money to adapt to it. But I think no matter where you are, farmers are going to have to change the crop varieties that they grow. And depending on how severe things get, that could be a real challenge. And what concerns me is that generational farming really has all this embedded knowledge in it. And if farmers are changing what they're growing mid-career, then they're not going to be able to draw on that same knowledge. So again, you're going to have lower yields and that's going to result in more food scarcity and higher food prices. Yeah. You know, higher food prices as well as less availability. And notably, you know, a marginal increase in the cost of grains might not even be noticed in most of the United States, where the cost of something like flour is a very minor input to our diet. But where you have people living on $2 a day, a big increase in the price of grains is a death sentence. So what does humanity do when it's more difficult to grow food? My prediction is that we're going to see more localized indoor farming, more vertical farming. And again, that's going to take more energy and it also needs to be really efficient and more cost effective. And maybe we'll start eating more crickets. I read this article in InGadget that said per kilogram, crickets offer roughly the same amount of protein as beef. There's more micronutrients as well especially since you're consuming the exoskeleton. (laughs) Okay, get ready for crickets. You know, in terms of space and water, livestock happens to be a very inefficient way to get calories to humans. So I think we're inevitably going to move to more efficient sources, more legumes, more crickets, more seaweed, who knows? The possibilities are endless. You know, you already have this huge vegetarian and vegan movement that's going on in places that you might not expect it, like Germany. People are increasingly changing their diets because the emissions from cows are becoming socially unacceptable in many places. Mm -hmm. And I think there's always going to be those people that want to eat their meat. I don't know that we'll really be able to get around that or away from that. But I do predict that the lab-grown meat is going to get better and better and the costs will come down for that. So I can see that also becoming a strategy for this. Yeah. You know, scarcity is going to drive change behavior. It's inevitable that adapting to a warmer world will not only be difficult, but it's also going to be costly. My prediction is that, at least in the U.S., who's willing to pay for what, whether it's mitigation strategies or adaptation strategies, all of that's going to fall on party lines. And we kind of need both as things get worse and worse. Yeah. So this is a natural transition to our final guest for this episode. He's an economist who has surveyed other economists about the costs of the climate crisis and looked at how all of this can play out. My name is Dr. Peter Howard. I'm an economics director at the Institute for Policy Integrity at New York University School of Law. A large portion of economists already believe that climate change is having a negative effect on the economy. And 
They also believe that that negative effect is going to increase over time to pretty substantial levels. For instance, they believe around a three degree increase, the mean and median, which are the measurements of central most likely estimates, are about 5% of GDP and negative and 8.5% of GDP losses, which is something in the range of when we we give them specific scenarios and timeframes. So if we use predicted GDP, that comes out to somewhere between negative 30 and negative $51 trillion in that year. Now, that doesn't account for all uncertainty, which we can get to in a bit, but these estimates are also highly uncertain and there's a lot of risk. And so there's additional incentives to actually address climate change, not because of just those damages, but there are possibilities of really catastrophic outcomes according to some economists, at those degrees. And so we should be um, particularly concerned about those worst-case scenarios. Yeah, and so let's just be clear here. You said, I think, a 5 and an 8.5% contraction. But that is not an absolute contraction. That's relative to what GDP would otherwise be, right? And so given that GDP is increasing over time, it would mean that we would have less GDP than we would in the future. Now, we also have to be careful here because it's not like all goods are going to be equally impacted. There's something called relative prices, which the idea is here is this, which is that, okay, I get more iPods, but I lose most forests. Well, it's great that I got more iPods and I'm well more better off. As forests become more scarce, we're going to value those remaining forests even more. And so we might get richer in terms of iPods, but less in terms of forests. So we should just be clear that there could be things that are substantially lost. And again, there are a variety of risks out there that are not captured by these central tendencies. So we cannot eliminate the possibility of really high damages beyond that that could erode growth, right? And we also can't eliminate the possibility completely of tipping points, which could erode those growth, but there's other tipping points that could cause a rise in temperature can kick off feedback effects in the climate system, and those feedback effects could result in much higher warming. So when we talk about three degrees, what we're usually thinking about in those scenarios is a three-degree increase in 2075, or approximately around then, from a doubling of CO2. And so one of the things we also find in our results is that if we speed up climate change, we actually get more damages. And so we would assume that people have less time to adapt. So you could actually end up in situations where, right, that with that much, much more rapid warming and much higher warming to get even higher damages. Now, you shouldn't necessarily take unlimited action because we have multiple risks to society, multiple objectives. So we wouldn't like want to take all efforts to eliminate extremely small probability, but we're talking like relatively high probabilities for horrible things and extremely high losses, right? And so we yeah. should be taking actions to actually reduce those irreversible losses, probabilities. And also human beings, when we study them, are actually adverse to uncertainty. We find that people are what's called risk adverse. So people are actually willing to sacrifice income in the real world to avoid facing these uncertain losses, okay? Let's talk about the cost of action versus the cost of inaction. I feel like in the past, 
maybe solar and wind were expensive. Batteries have been expensive. There's the cost of electric vehicles. There's been a lot made about the cost of some of the tools that we would use to mitigate emissions. What does the research that you've been working on and and the research that you've seen say about the cost of inaction versus the cost of action? We survey people on abatement cost as well, and we find actually higher estimates than the general literature. The general opinion is that these benefits exceed costs. We should also note that there are co-benefits to reducing greenhouse gases, right? That a lot of greenhouse gas production, particularly coal and oil, but even natural gas, do produce other pollutants. And then there's another factor what we should also account for, which is that these impacts are unequal. So some regions, like this is looking at overall benefits and costs, but like there's also an issue of just fairness, which is separate from this, which is that one of the other findings we find is that the poorest individuals and countries are going to be impacted the most, and that actually economists believe that we're going to have a more unequal society. And that's actually generally consistent with other economic findings as well. Interestingly enough, usually the focus is on between country distribution. We find is that economists believe that it's not only between countries that that's going to happen, but within countries. So the richer individuals within countries are going to avoid more costs than the poorest individuals. Yeah. So let's talk about this for a second. Let's talk about methodology here, because these surveys that you've looked at, they've put a number in terms of GDP on climate change at a certain temperature. And you've pointed out, given the feedback loops, we don't know how much worse this is going to get. But even when you set those aside, given that there are all of these second and third order effects, how do economists even go about quantifying a change as big as 3C? How do you deal with the margin of error? Well, a lot of these models actually omit tipping points. So if I take this new uh, data work, Remember, it's looking at variation in a spot over time. Well, if an event hasn't happened, like a tipping point, there's a nonlinearity, that model can't pick up on that. And it can only pick up on certain types of variation. So a lot of these methods are like, you know, there's that famous analogy of blind men looking at the elephant and they're all touching different parts and they all describe something different, but not the elephant. You really need to think of this methodology as somewhat that, where like they're not all capturing the same thing. And as even um, a relatively conservative economist, Richard Toll says, there's likely to be more bad surprises than good surprises, right? So we kind of know that at this point, which is like, it's really hard. You can come up with something we might be surprised that's good, but in general, the impacts of climate change, we could generally think of as omitted things as being pretty bad. Yeah. So a lot of those omitted impacts are pretty negative. And so we should think of often these damages as lower bound estimates. And a lot of things, and I think any economist that you would talk to will sort of admit that, that they're always going to be conservative. So I'm wondering, when you think about a 3C level rise, how much of these economic impacts could be mitigated with successful adaption measures? Do you see any kind of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of how we could mitigate a 3C rise? Oh, so I think there's chances to mitigate three degrees. I think it's still possible to avoid three degrees, in my opinion. And I think that, in my personal opinion, I think that damages are quite high. I think there's a lot of uncertainty, and I think that the discount rate is relatively low. So in my opinion, strong action 
is justified from a, just a dollar's perspective, okay, dollars and cents and overall well-being as well. And then the economic impacts of that 3C rise could then also be mitigated. But I think you could take action, yes, through things like reducing. I think that renewables have gotten a lot cheaper, but I think we should separate out mitigation from adaption. Okay, so mitigation is actions that I can take to reduce the amount of CO2 emissions in the atmosphere that leads to warming. Now, again, when we're saying warming, remember there's uncertainty. I've talked about this earlier, but like there is uncertainty about how much warming we're going to get from how much CO2. I should say greenhouse gas reductions, not just CO2. And so we should be careful that there is actually a risk problem here as well, which is like, if I reduce it, am I guaranteed to avoid two degrees? You know, there's a probability. The more we reduce it, the higher the probability that we'll avoid those risks, right? So if we have the amount of emissions that we predict for three degrees, we cannot omit the possibility of it being much higher than three degrees. Three degrees is a process and an estimate is highly uncertain still. Right, right. We have to take action now under uncertainty. So again, that's a big point I want to make. There's reasons to take action to reduce risk, okay? Mm -hmm. But in terms of mitigation, there is ability to lower emissions, turning renewables. And we should note that, you know, solar and wind got a lot cheaper and that's going to happen. There's also, you know, people were relatively bullish in this survey on the possibilities of negative emission technologies. Oh, interesting. What I will say is that there are many people that believe that negative emission technologies can help us, but that doesn't avoid, because of this uncertainty, the need to take action now. We can't just keep pumping out greenhouse gas emissions, right? Because there's a lot of risk and those technologies are uncertain and their ability, not only their availability, but their cost. Right. And so there's a lot of work understanding that those technologies as well and how available they're going to be. As also, you know, there's uncertainty if governments will take significant enough action to incentivize those technologies. Those aren't technologies aren't going to be adopted without government policies. People are not going to invest billions of dollars to trillions of dollars in these technologies if there is no financial incentive. So taking action is necessary to create the incentives to do that. Now, my estimates asked economists to account for adaption in their costs. And that's an important point is the cost. And I brought this up earlier, but adaption is not free. It's expensive. It's also not perfect, but we have to trade off those costs. So in my research, we find that with these surveys, the damages do account for adaption. And we looked at the cost of mitigation and we find that there's reasons to act. What strikes me about what Peter's talking about here is that when the problem is considered urgent, governments find the money. Look at what happened with COVID. Money appeared out of nowhere and all that red tape disappeared overnight. And we had a vaccine in what, nine months, a year? Yeah, but that takes requires taking the problem seriously. Like we mm -hmm. took, say, World War II seriously when we mobilized the entire industrial base of the United States and raised taxes massively. I appreciate the work that Dr. Howard has done, but I can't help but think that economists, by and large, are massively underestimating the impacts. <laughs> Just like the climate scientists and everybody else is providing underestimates. <laughs> yeah, and yet this is exactly the sort of thing we're talking about, because we aren't just talking about the impacts of extreme heat, or more natural disasters, or threats to agriculture, or sea level rise, or more diseases, or climate migration. We're talking about all of those things coming at once. Well, it's no wonder there's people out there in the woods prepping for the doomsday. <laughs> yeah, but good luck. Good luck. You're not going to make it on your own either. 
No, it's got, true, right? Got news for you. And you know, it's funny in the renewable energy industry, we always talk about value stacking in terms of like how to make a solar project more viable, you know, pencil out, you know, it can make more money, whatever. This is like the exact opposite thing. This is like doom stacking. Yeah. This is going to be hard for our civilization to cope with. And like Bill McGuire warns, we may not be able to adapt in time. Mm -hmm. May not or won't. Well, you know, there are a lot of examples in history of civilizations failing from environmental stresses that are less severe than what we're facing. Mm -hmm. And so this is why conventional economic approaches fall short of being able to meaningfully tell us about the impact of the climate crisis. Yeah, because those past civilizations, they had like one environmental thing to contend with, and it doomed them. We're talking about multiples. And let's remember, those economic models, they emit the tipping points. Yeah, and you know, just like the problem with the climate science, they omit them because they can't model them with any degree of accuracy. Mm -hmm. So what we're getting here is the most conservative, best-case scenario, and everything we're hearing is an underestimate. Oh my gosh. And even if they did, like hypothetically, if they were able to actually model tipping points or whatever, I feel like those results would be so out of sync with what people would expect that it would sound crazy, and then people wouldn't believe it anyway. Like, look at the IPCC reports, what Bill said, that they are actually very conservative because they're being put out by governments. And even those are already pretty bad. And this is exactly how we end up in a situation where we are improperly prepared for the severity of what is coming. Oh, my God. That's why so many of us who work in this field and who read these reports have climate anxiety. It's why psychologists are being trained on how to treat people who are quietly freaking out about the future that's coming. And I often wonder, like, if average people actually understood what was coming to them in the next 30 years, would they change their behavior? Would they even try to, you know, live normal lives? I mean, look at what happened during COVID. That was only two years and people completely rethought what they wanted from their life and what gave them meaning. And people changed their careers and all kinds of things simply because of two years. Yeah, this is all worse for the younger people, for sure. And you know, for those of us who work in fields like clean energy, proactively trying to address this crisis, everything we do can seem inadequate. Mm -hmm. And yet, it is utterly essential that we do it. Absolutely. And that's the antidote for climate anxiety, is taking action, being in action, doing something, being a part of something bigger than yourself. It could be switching your career into this industry, or it could just be volunteering and being a part of groups that are active in this space. Yeah, absolutely. But I want to point out that not every action is the same. Personally, I'm not interested in what Exxon knew right now. I'm not interested in whether some public official is a climate denier or not. I'm not even interested in blocking pipelines. I am only interested in building the solutions that allow our society to durably get off of fossil fuels. And to me, everything else feels like a distraction. I totally hear where you're coming from. And I can definitely see your point. My thought about that is coming from the public relations side of things, marketing. Like I can see how support for some of these activities can bring awareness to average people and get them talking about an issue and wanting to take some type of action. So I feel like there's something useful about people raising the alarm. Yes, there is utility in raising the alarm, but we need more than that. Right. We already have efforts that are underway addressing this problem in actionable ways. And they need to be scaled as rapidly as possible. Or we lose, no matter how many alarms we sound. I absolutely agree. And that's why like, we want to turn this energy around sounding the alarm into 
taking responsibility. I mean, imagine if everybody on the planet took responsibility for the climate crisis where they could, and I'm not talking about just recycling or using reusable bags to the grocery store or whatever, but like using your influence. Like I would like to get to a place where in society, it's so unacceptable for you not to use your influence and leverage to stop the climate crisis. That's where I want us to get. Yeah, that's what we need is massive societal change. Oh, and in an extremely compressed timeline. (laughs) By the way, seven years. And I was thinking about this, like, if your doctor told you that you have stage one cancer, no matter what cancer it was, what would you do? You would immediately schedule an appointment to have that tumor removed. Like, you wouldn't hesitate, right? You wouldn't wait till it's stage four. You wouldn't say, well, let's get a second opinion. Let's just see, you know, how quickly it grows. Yeah. Well, the problem is we're way past stage one. And here we are. We are where we are. And it's 2023. We have seven years to reduce emissions by 50%. Future emissions? To reduce annual emissions. The amount that we emit every year needs to be reduced in half by 2030, which means in the immortal words of Jigar Shaw, we have to deploy, deploy, deploy. Absolutely. And the only things I have seen mobilize society that fast are war or religion or like authoritarian dictatorships? You know, since I don't like that last suggestion, <laughs> I'm just going to say that we're going to have to get religion. We're going to have to... App- <laughs> we're going to have to come to Jesus on this one. <laughs> exactly. We're going to have to approach this as the cosmic struggle that it is. The struggle for our earth and for our future. Ah, oh, help me, baby Jesus. You know, what we're talking about is really, really daunting. And it's, for me, it's really easy to get very, very, very depressed about it. And then I also think, well, a lot can happen in seven years. Seven years is actually, it's a long time. There's a lot of days and a lot of hours in that time frame. And just think about what the Allies did in World War II or going to the moon, taking humans into space. Like many points in history have felt like we are up against an impossible task, but humanity achieved its goal. And I feel like we're in another place where we have an opportunity to do that. But what it requires, you know, the allies, the moon, what was the equation there? Alignment of society, government, and money. And everybody agreed that these tasks were worth doing and accomplishing, and we did them. And we can do it again. Like, we're fully capable. We just get to choose to commit to deploy, 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 and making a dramatic change in our future, and cutting those emissions. Yeah, and if we can do that, we have a fighting chance. Yeah. And with that, Earthlings, we will see you again on the next turn of this beautiful blue-green space flower we call home. Thank you, Earthlings. We believe in you. 